This is lesson 23 in the study of Romans. We're in chapter 8. It's a beautiful chapter for those who are in Messiah. And the last few weeks we spoke about how to recognize those who are in Messiah. When Paul uses the phrase in Messiah or in Yeshua or in Messiah Yeshua or even in him, he has something very specific in mind. Those who are in Messiah are those who have been justified by their faith in Yeshua and they are being led into a true Torah observance through the leading of the Spirit of God. If we read verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, without leaving anything out, without pulling verses out of context, we find that in Messiah is really summed up for us in these verses. Listen to what it says. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind Set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, if you want to know who truly is in Messiah and for those who there is no condemnation, They are those whose lives have been dramatically changed. They are no longer habitual sinners. They are those who are a reflection of the Messiah Yeshua. They are those whose lives are lived in a loving obedience to the Father. Who love and care for their neighbor as well. For those who are in Messiah, there is no condemnation because there is no longer unrepentant sin. And I want to look at this today. And remember, we started looking out, looking at this, uh, using a quote from Destined to Reign by Joseph Prince. And we kind of showed the error in this. But I want to show some of the truth in it today. This is the quote. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua. And this is a powerful verse. I encourage you to commit it, this verse to memory For with it you can repel all the accuser's attacks. Are you in Messiah Yeshua today? Now I spent time showing the error he made by leaving off the therefore. And pulling the verse out of context. But really, as a standalone, this isn't so bad because even without the therefore, he unwittingly put the same prerequisite in there for there being no condemnation. By saying, are you in Messiah Yeshua today? You see, the therefore referred back to chapter 7 and his discourse on being led by the Spirit versus being carried off by the flesh. And part of being in the Messiah Yeshua is being led by the Spirit. And so Joseph Prince asks the right question when he says, 
Are you in Messiah Yeshua today? That's a question we should ask ourselves every day. It's not only a question we should ask ourselves every day, but with every move we make. Am I in Messiah Yeshua today? Will this act bring me closer to Messiah Yeshua or will it drive a wedge in our relationship? Well, notice what he says next. He says, with this verse, commit it to memory because with this verse, you can repel all the attacks of the accuser. And that's true. When the adversary brings condemnation into your life, when the accuser comes to you with condemnation for the sins that Messiah has forgiven you for, when he comes to you with, God will not forgive that. You're not good enough. God has forsaken you. You can go to this verse and reply, there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah and I am in Messiah Yeshua because I have been justified through him and I am living a life for him by the leading of the Spirit. Then you can sing a little song of praise and do a little dance and just move on. Right? However, if you take this verse out of context and use it incorrectly, you can dig yourself a hole. You see, you can use it to repel the attacks of the accuser, but misused, you can use it to justify your sin as well. If you take this out of context, it can be a license to sin. For an example, if you use this when the Spirit of God is correcting you, then you have a problem. And it's not rocket science. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. If you're about to sin and you feel a tug in your heart telling you what you're about to do is not pleasing to God, that is not the condemnation of the adversary. That's the Spirit of God trying to keep you from sin. You cannot sin and be in Messiah because in Messiah there is no sin. And the Spirit of God will warn you. He'll tug at your heart. He'll touch your heart. If you have a tender heart, you'll listen. Where this is appropriate is when the adversary comes to you, as I stated above, with your past sin. Those that you know Messiah has forgiven you for, condemning you, telling you you're not good enough. When thoughts come into your head or people come to you saying you're not good enough, your sin is too great for God to forgive. You can say, well, that's okay because I was never good enough. But now I am in Messiah Yeshua, justified and sanctified day by day. I'm being remade into the likeness of the one who is good enough. And he lives in me and I in him. And the point I want to make to you today is don't confuse the warning, the correction of the Holy Spirit for the condemnation of the accuser of the brethren. For those who are in Messiah, Paul says this in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading you to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. For those who are being led by the Spirit of God, or we could say for those who are in Messiah, theirs is the adoption as sons, co-heirs, to the world to come. For those who are following God and being led by the Spirit with lives that are free of unrepentant sin, there is no condemnation. 
And they are the sons of God. For those who are in Messiah, there's no condemnation because your father will not condemn you. Just as you, if your child goes astray, will do anything, pay any cost to see that child come back into the fold, so too Abba in heaven is the same. He will not condemn you. He'll discipline you. He'll correct you because you're his son. You know, whenever I see this verse, Whenever I read this verse, I'm reminded of Israel. You know, if you go to Israel, everything seems to be in the hustle mode. You know what I mean? Jewish men, they don't just walk, they speed walk. They speed walk here and there. Fast paced. And oftentimes you'll see uh, a son following behind the father crying, Abba, Abba. Completely focused on keeping pace with his Abba. He doesn't see anything else. He doesn't hear anything else. His eyes are fixed on keeping up with Abba. And I think that's the idea Paul's trying to convey here. That we are no longer slaves, but we are now free to follow the Spirit of God. We should be like that son following his father, crying, Abba, Abba. Looking to follow in his footsteps. We are his children. We are his young children now seeking his guidance, the guidance of our Abba and the approval of our Abba. The idea is that we're hanging on every word, trying to put our footsteps where he walks. His love is all we seek in this life. That little boy shouting, Abba, Abba, has nothing on his mind. He's, the only thing on his mind is not being separated from his father and wanting his father to be pleased with him. Just as we all long to hear our Abba say, this is my son, and with him I am well pleased. Everything we do is to hear him say, well done, enter my rest. And that's what Paul is trying to convey to us when he says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. The Spirit testifies with ours that we are children because he teaches us. He corrects us. And if necessary, he disciplines us as any father would, who saw his son going astray. The book of Hebrews elaborates on this. Chapter 12 and verse 5 through 8, and then I'm going to read 11 as well, says this. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as a son. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
Let me say, if you confuse the Lord's discipline with the condemnation of the adversary of God and you reject the discipline of the Lord, you're rejecting his course corrections for your life. The Spirit of God is trying to lead you down a narrow path that Yeshua spoke of, the one that he says few find. But if you reject those course corrections, his discipline, you'll not stay on that path. Paul tells us something else about being sons of God and his discipline of those he loves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light of affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. God disciplines, God's discipline moves us from faith to faith. It builds righteousness in us, behavior. And that's why he concluded verse 17 with this. If indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. You know what that means? I want to go to Yeshua's prayer for a minute. Let's get an idea of this. Yeshua's prayer in John chapter 17, verse 1 says, Yeshua spoke these things, and lifting his eyes up to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, And Yeshua the Messiah, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How did Yeshua glorify the Father on earth? Well, I'm going to tell you, everything he did, everything he said was what the Father spoke to him. He told us he only did what he saw the Father doing. We spoke of this verse before. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 49 says, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say, and how, what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, for whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. He made the Father's will known to the world. Yeshua did this by being a perfect example of walking by the Spirit of God. A perfect example of living out his Father's will. He restored his Father's true will to the world. You know, we listen to men interpret God's word for us. Men are always trying to interpret God's word. And then someone comes along and reinterprets his word for us. There are endless interpretations of God's word. Rabbi Yeshua, however, did not interpret God's word on his own. He did not give his interpretation for the word of God. He didn't share his thoughts on the word of God, on a passage of scripture. But he spoke into existence the clarification of God concerning his commands. He spoke the words of the Father. You see, when we read something like this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, it says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Those are not just the words of Yeshua. They are the clarification of the command of God given by none other than the Father himself because Yeshua spoke the very words of God. Remember what we read last week about the prophet, the one who would come and speak the very words of God. That prophet that was spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is Yeshua. He did not interpret, but he spoke the very words of God. I've heard people in the Messianic movement say, Yeshua was teaching, and he probably even learned this from the house of Shammai, because it's very similar to what Shammai taught. That's nonsense. As we saw last week, he's teaching the very words of the Father, bringing clarity from God about his word. You know, sadly... In the church today, we tend to give glory to the teacher. We have these huge teaching ministries and churches with preachers' names attached. So much so that often Yeshua and the Father take a back seat to the preacher. Well, not Yeshua. He brought glory to the Father by living and preaching the Father's words, making sure that the Father received the glory. And for that, he was glorified with the Father. Teachers should be careful to do the same. 17 verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. If we live lives as Yeshua that glorify God by living as he would have us live, by teaching and preaching the truth of his commands, this is what we have a share in. We're going to share in the glory that Yeshua and the Father had before the world began. We could say the age began. because that. Listen to what Paul says next in verse 18 of chapter 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Look at what he does here. He personifies the whole creation. And he says the creation is in a state of anxiousness as it waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation is waiting for the restoration that God is bringing about in us. We're the sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. And are being led by the Spirit of God and creation. Every other living thing is anxiously awaiting. I don't know about you, but I'm longingly awaiting as well. You see, creation is waiting for the children who run after Father, run after Abba. Who look to Abba for how to walk through life. Who seek His approval, who hang on His every word. And do nothing except what they see the Father doing. And you know why? Well, let's go back to the beginning and find out. Listen to what Genesis 1 says. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. And over the cattle and over all the earth. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Man was created in the image of God to rule and to care for the creation of God. We're told that he was to care for the garden, to cultivate the garden. 
He gave names to all the animals as if they were his creation, as if they were his pets, his very own. Think about what man was supposed to be and what the world was supposed to be. Is it any wonder that it anxiously awaits for the revealing of the sons of God? We get a glimpse of what it was supposed to be in Isaiah 11. Listen to what it says. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. As the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play in the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This is what the creation longs for. It's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed for the ones who will walk, love, and care as God loves, walks, and cares. They're waiting for the kingdom to be restored, to be freed from corruption that it has been subjected to, which is what Paul gets at next in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says the creation was subject to futility. You know the King James, if you read it in the King James, says vanity. And if you look at this Greek word, it's the same Greek word that the Septuagint uses for the Hebrew word havel. And it's the same word that Solomon used over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says things like, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Now, it's translated vanity here, but I want to look at the Hebrew word. I put the definition up here because it more accurately means vapor. All is vapor. And what is vapor? It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, it's here in the morning, gone in the afternoon. The creation, every living thing has been subjected to this. Here today, gone tomorrow. Here in the morning, blown by the winds and burned away by the afternoon sun. It's all subject to the temporary. And I can't help but believe that the words of Solomon were in the mind of Paul as he wrote these words. You know, Solomon will say things like this in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vapor. All go to the same place. All came from dust and returned to dust. You see, without God, we're, all, we're not much better than beasts. We're born and we die. We're nothing but vapor. Paul says, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it. But in truth, it was subjected because of sin. Because man could not say no to disobeying God. And so it was subject to futility, to vanity, a mere vapor, not lasting through the day. We miss the eternal. And we can't even see the eternal. We can't even realize the eternal because of the vapor. And so Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vapor. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. We can't be satisfied because we're chasing after vapor. We're vapor being born and vanishing. Nothing in life satisfies us because it's all vapor. You know, I was thinking, we, we believers, we, we, we often go from this preacher to that, to this teacher to that, seeking the truth. But of those things, Solomon says in chapter 12, verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vapor of vapor, says the preacher. It's all vapor. Creation went from the eternal unchanging to vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Until Messiah Yeshua comes. I found this Midrash. It's one of my favorites. It says this. Though these things were created in their fullness, yet when Adam sinned, they were spoiled and they will not again return to their perfection until the son of parades, the Messiah, comes. We spend our lives flailing about, chasing after vapor. We reach out and grab that which is vanishing before us, slipping right through our fingers. And vapor does something else. It clouds the vision. We can't even see what's real. It's much like darkness. You can't see in darkness. We need what's real. And what is real is Yeshua. And we need the light that is the light of Yeshua. You see, it's all about Yeshua. That's what's real. Everything we chase after in life is fleeting. It's vapor. Solomon, at the end of his life, looked at everything that he did in life and saw it's vapor. Vanishing in the light of the sun. Here in the morning... Gone this afternoon. And we in the Kehillah of Yeshua are no different. I, I was thinking about it. Even in our search for the word of God, we go from preacher to preacher, listening for something new when there's nothing new. We go to a teacher and listen to his interpretation of this or his interpretation of that. This proof text and that proof text. And when all is said and done, it's all vapor. You know, we had Rabbi Shapira here a year ago and he taught an excellent teaching on the deity of Yeshua, the Messiah. He taught for hours on the deity of Yeshua through Hebrew text. Who here, who, how many were here that, for that? And how many of those can tell me one word of that? How many can tell me one paragraph? How many can recite one proof text? You see, it's all vapor. But when Yeshua touches your life and imparts to you his forgiveness and his healing, there's no doubt about his deity because nobody else could do that. 
You don't need someone to tell you he's divine when he whispers in your ear the truth of the word of God and the truth of his salvation. That you remember because that's not vapor. Teachers teach and teach, but their words are vapor. There's only one thing that's real and true. And that is what our whole journey in this life is about. It's Messiah Yeshua. And if you don't find him in your journey, and if you don't walk like him through this life, then the rest of this is vapor and it vanishes and so will your life. It's all about Yeshua. And that's why Solomon concludes his discourse in Ecclesiastes with this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. You see, the conclusion for the, of the matter for Solomon and the conclusion for the matter of the matter for Paul are the same. Reverence God. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Build relationship with God. Seek him. Praise him for the work he does in your life, the correction he gives you, the discipline and the direction he gives you through the Spirit. And praise him. For he's making you a son of God, a copy of Messiah Yeshua, who is heir to the world to come. He's making you a co-heir. So seek him, build relationship. Because in the end, everything else is vapor and will vanish in the light of God's son. Keep the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Walk through life being led by God and loving the whole of his creation, everything else is vapor. And when it all vanishes, there's nothing left, as Solomon said, but to stand before Yeshua and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you.